From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Friday. We are glad to uh, be with you today. Jack Williams is away. I'm Tom Price, along with our Friday host, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good here at the end of the week, as always. Yeah, and it's a big day today for the uh, for the church, as we uh, note Our Lady of Sorrows. It, it is, and uh, of course, it's not by coincidence does it follow the triumph of the cross, which has been directed to and pointed to the victory that Christ obviously won for us on the cross, but was originally the in invention, which means the infinding of the cross by St. Helena. Mm. When she, uh, the mother of uh, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, to whom the Lord uh, sent a sign, in this sign you shall conquer, uh, he swept away his enemies and he gave liberty to the church as a consequence. And at the end of his life, despite postponing and postponing and postponing, he finally received baptism. But as his mother was very industrious and went off to the Holy Land, where she uh, asked, where was our Lord crucified? They knew exactly where, because the Romans had done a very nice job of putting up a signpost. They leveled the hill, and they put a temple, a pagan temple, on top of it. Wow. And, of course, what did the church do? What did uh, St. Helena and her son do? They leveled the temple, <laughs> and they put the Church of Holy Sepulchre on top of the location. So it was there that she found in a cistern uh, three pieces of wood, uh, and she didn't know exactly how she would tell which of these was Christ. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they had gone to great efforts to get rid of the evidence, you know, our Lord and the two thieves, to get rid of any signs and indications of that, to expunge him from history, as evil always tries to do. Cancel culture is sort of a representation of that today. Get them expunge her from social media, expunge from the, from the well-being of society, get rid of them. Yeah, nothing new about that. Nothing new about that. In the original, in the Roman cancel culture, it was hide all evidence that Christ was uh, crucified, and we don't know where his body went. Nothing to see here. Move along, move they, along. Nothing to see here. And so she was uncertain which of these. So she asked, bring a newly dead person, corpse. And in great faith, she laid it on each of these crosses, and he came back to life with one of them. Wow. And this she took to be the true cross. Yeah. And so those relics were taken to Rome. Uh, they're in the church of Santa Croce in Jerusalem, Holy Cross in Jerusalem in Rome, mm -hmm. where there are other relics of the Passion. So that's what the feast day originally honored. But of course, as I said, it's sort of been turned because obviously that was just an instrumental means that Christ used, that God the Father used for the salvation of the world. And so we, f we focus on that cross, which St. Paul said was a scandal, um, a scandal to the Jews and uh, to the Greeks. And so we honor that wood of the cross as we do on Good Friday when we kiss the wood of the cross 
Uh, for, so the same logic of that, that the ultimately our feast days point to Christ himself uh, as the central focus of the liturgy. All right. Let me give out the phone number. Uh, people are starting to call in right now, and you can join the crowd here at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986. would love to talk with you today. If you prefer to send us an email, well, that's certainly acceptable. And the address for that is openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. In the subject line, please put Colin or Friday so that we can uh, match things up here. So so that led to the church's uh, reflections here on Our Lady of Sorrows. Right, because the, as time going on, the church has seen an ever deeper relationship between Mary under the cross and Christ on the cross. We already see the hints of it in the words of the gospel, the, the giving of of Mary to John and John to Mary as mother and son, Mm -hmm. the beloved disciple. And we see ourselves as that beloved disciple. We see the church as the mother of the disciples, and so Our Lady. So that role, and so this honors her for her unique and, and indispensable in this sense only, indispensable to the redemption because she was chosen by the Father from all eternity to be the mother of the Redeemer. That made her indispensable, not by our calculation, but by his. Not this woman in history, not that woman, not, you know, earlier in time, not later in time, not in another country, but this woman in this place at that time. By his wisdom, she was made indispensable, the one and only who would be the instrument of the, uh, the giving of the human nature to the second person of the Trinity. And so we honor what all of that was destined for, to salvation. And so under the cross, she was Our Lady of Sorrows, the Mother of Sorrows, she's also been called. Uh, and there she participated, as had been prophesied on the day of the Lord's presentation in the temple, you know, that a sword too shall pierce your heart that she would share in the passion of Christ in a different way. Mm. She would share in that redemptive act differently than our Lord, subordinately to him, but nonetheless as a participant as she was in the incarnation itself. As she is in the reigning in heaven, as we say, there's the king and then there is the queen, his mother, because she, uh, uh, of all the women she in the, have ever lived, only she could s- sit at his right hand. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Calls coming in right now at 833-288-EWTN. We do have a couple lines open for you. 833-288-3986. And again, the email address, openline at EWTN.com. Here's one of those emails. This is from Frank, who says, Colin, what would be involved with creation of an additional Catholic rite for those desiring to worship according to the liturgical practice of the extraordinary or traditional Latin Mass, similar to how the Eastern Catholic rites are incorporated in the Church. Thanks, Frank. I don't think flows logically from what the Church has done uh, in the past. Remember, we can speak of churches as we do of Ruthenians and Melkites and Maronites and Cyril-Malabar and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Roman Church. 
their rights developed organically and out of the out of the soil of the culture in which they are and so the byzantine rights you know when the time when byzantium was the high point of the, of the roman imperial eras mm-hmm. uh this was the this is sort of the style it was adopted in rome it was much much different and so the, liturgically it developed different there there is uh, the the connection of both of the ordinary and the extraordinary form is to the same root so they are branches of the same tree so I can't see that being a distinct right in terms it would never have a hierarchy of its own for example uh-huh. but rather it would be a form that could be used as Pope Benedict had envisioned um, and maybe that may come come uh, to pass in the in the future I think in our own era, it is sort of using the right wrongly by some people, others simply because they love it and they appreciate it, but some using it almost as a protest of the Church, of the Vatican Council, of this papacy, or all of the, all of those together mm-hmm. that the present pontiff is opposed to and is using and is being very limiting therefore in it. I don't think that means that in the future there can't be some other praxis, some other practice going on. But anyway, it has to be connected to the trunk and uh, that would mean that if two forms are to exist side by side or that the two somehow organically relate to each other as Pope Benedict envisioned where they, they sort of mutually interact and inform each other and come together you know, with the sort of the best practices of both or something like that, that could be another possibility. But a separate right in the strict sense of that, as there are Ukrainian and Ruthenian Mm -hmm. and so on, uh, I don't think so. Okay, well, that's how it is. Then, uh, Frank, thank you so much for your email. Again, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure if you're uh, wanting to uh, have Colin answer that question for you, put Colin in the subject line or Friday in the subject line so that we can get that to uh, the right program because we've got a different host each and every day. In a moment here, we're going to get to the phones and talk with Juliet in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Lines are open for you as well, 833-288-EWTN, if you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833 833- 288-3986 Open Line Friday for you with Colin Donovan on EWTM. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're with us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Calls are coming in at 833-288-EWTN. And if you'd like to join in, that number again, 833 833- 
288-3986. As Colin was saying earlier, this month's devotion is to Our Lady of Sorrows. We ask Mary to pray for us so that we can unite ourselves to her in her sorrow, in the hope that we will one day also share her joy in the triumph of her son. You too can join in this devotion to Mary and strengthen our connection to Our Lady with rosaries, statues, bracelets, holy cards, prayer booklets, and so much more. They're all available right now at EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Juliet in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Juliet, happy Friday to you. What's on your mind today? Yeah, happy Friday. So I my question is to find out if if there's anything wrong as a Catholic to have someone carry um, you know, surrogate for me. Sure. Uh yes. Um the church would consider that uh, uh gravely wrong. Uh a child it comes into the world through parents who love him and in the context of that love and an act of that love. And the child needs that for its own growth and well-being. And so the church sees marriage as having two purposes, and that is the procreative one, the reproductive one, seems evident from the natural world. Male and female have babies of whatever species you are. The unitive element of that is particular to human beings, although there are some animals that, for where there seems to be a, a monogamy for the most part. But among humans, it's a natural state because of the, the amount of time that it takes to raise a child. And so the, parent, the child to be born into that situation and to be raised by the parents. So the things that are opposed to that are obviously our divorce and remarriage. It's the reason why, you know, divorce is seen by the church as uh, a breaking of that bond of, of union and unity. There are other ways to break that bond other than a divorce or adultery or something like that. And surrogacy is considered one of them because what essentially happened is a third person enters into that, uh, into that union to carry the child. And that's not even discussing how that child came about because typically what it is, if it's the from the both of the two parents, from the parents whose child would be parents who would be raising it, that requires, for example, the harvesting of the eggs, the collection of sperm. It requires uh, what's called uh, in vitro fertilization, which means outside the, the woman's body, the egg is fertilized. Typically, the practice is they're lucky they might get eight or nine fertilized eggs. Then they do a culling. They look and they find out which ones are genetically defective or which ones are, you know, are already perhaps they've gone awry and they're uh, defective. So they, they kill those. And then they may plant many into the, the womb of the mother who's receiving them because obviously this is not, this is not the, the mother who wants to have the child, but this is a surrogate mother. And 
if they have any problems and if they end up with getting two twins or three or more, if they all develop, that's not healthy and they end up doing selective abortion of the others. So there are many grave moral things that are involved in the industry of in vitro fertilization and surrogacy that happen behind the scenes to gratify a legitimate desire of a couple to have a child. That's a wonderful thing, but it also means that if we're a Christian, we depend upon the providence of God. And instead of turning to medical engineering, we turn to prayer and we ask God, we ask God to correct this fertility and women have found prayer answered. Yeah. Or they go to a place like the uh, St. Uh, or I don't think, it's Paul VI Institute. Yes. I believe it's still in Omaha. Mm-hmm which they help women sort of maximize, and men as well, maximize their fertility by the use of NFP or maybe by making their their health more robust with the proper, you know, nutrients. I mean, they use different natural means and moral means to help create a situation where the greatest likelihood of fertility is, part of which is using NFP because NFP tracks the cycle of the woman, and in doing so, it can tell when she's infertile if, say, because of the woman's health, it's not a good time to have a child. You could, you could say, well, we don't need a child at this time, and then use those infertile periods. Or you can use the fertile periods to have a child. So you can put, turn science to the advantage of nature instead of oppo- using science to oppose nature and God's design. So... If you're thinking of surrogacy, I'll just tell you right out, it's gravely wrong, and there are many grave wrongs, including uh, the uh, homicide of uh, unborn children that take place as part of these industry, mm-hmm. and that there are others who would help you. And we will certainly uh, unite in prayer that you could have a child by the by the, me- the lawful means. And I also look you to uh, suggest you look up the Paul VI Institute in Omaha, I think it's at Creighton University or nearby in Omaha, uh, for their resources and for their advice, because I think you will find that uh, if it's the will of God, you will find a legitimate and moral means to have that child and not an illegitimate and immoral one. And I would be remiss if I did not mention adoption. And adoption, for which there is great need today. Yes. Uh, maybe less because the number of abortions but uh, that are taking place. But nonetheless, there are many, uh, you know, I would say the state of the family has created this. Yeah. You know, uh, men, men go around causing problems and they're, never, they're not there to help the woman. Mm-hmm. And the woman is not able to take care of the one or two or more children that she has to take care of. And gives them up for adoption, whether at birth or 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 they go into fosterage. So there's all kinds of ways to be a mother, uh, than to have have your own child by nat- by the means God intended. Juliet, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for your phone call. That uh, opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Interesting question here from Mary, uh, Colin. When Satan chose evil instead of God, did he have a true choice? He did. Okay. In fact, nobody other than Mary has ever had such a true choice. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about it. Because 
the angels were created. They were given their nature and its greatness and beauty and precision of intellect and strength of will. They were given all the tools. And God gave them all the knowledge for the office for which they created. As St. Thomas Aquinas goes through the choirs of the angels and talks about the, the missions, the office or the missions of the angels. Mm-hmm. And so he gave them everything they needed for those offices. <clears throat> and many of the fathers suspect that he gave them another piece of information. And that was that to a lowly human being, a creature not yet in existence when this was done, mm-hmm. a, cre- a creature who of mixed material and spiritual nature, he would unite his, the divine nature. The second person would unite his divine nature. And of all the things they were told, that is likely the one that caused them to say no, whether it's the, the pride that, well, why not to an angel? Why would he not unite himself to an angel? Mm, yeah. So whatever the, the reason, the angel had that instant of decision, and their natures are so pure and their intellect so strong and their will so firm that in their very first moral act that they had, where they were not receiving these light and the graces that came in the instant of their creation, their next act was this act for or against God. And those who are for it, God will be forever for him and those because they could never now, what a perfect decision they made. And those who are against God still believe they were right in being against him and Mm. rejecting what he planned to do. Wow. We have the advantage. We have the advantage of our changeable nature and that is that we can repent because we've done something stupid in the past. But in the future, we can also renounce our repentance and sin again. So it's sort of a mixed blessing to be a human being mm. because we can change our mind and we can change our wills. The angels had no such possibility. Uh, John in Nebraska, sit tight. We're going to come to you in just a moment, uh, probably after the break. This will take us to the break from Robin. How is the perpetual virginity of Mary significant to our faith? Well, it's significant because uh, of Mary's unique role. Uh, Everything we say of Mary is in relationship to her son, Christ. So, you know, you, you would say that that Mary, if, if Mary were not a perpetual virgin, then it would suggest that it would make as much sense for the high priest in the Jewish temple to have invited squatters to come in and live inside it. Mm. Because Mary was the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant, where Christ was present for the nine months before his nativity. And so this is the holiest place on earth. And you think of all the reverence which God demanded of the Jewish people, of the Israelites. You think of all the reverence demanded of them and which they gave to the place where God's power alone, that was all that was in the temple, his power. Mm. Not his word, his word indicated by the tablets of the law. The reverence they gave is a sign for us of the reverence we should give to that Holy of Holies, and that is Mary. But the doctrine of it is the complete and utter self-gift of Mary to the service of God's will as if in a marriage. 
so that by the bond of charity, not by the bond of human nature, she is, in that sense, the, the spouse of the Redeemer, spiritually, because of the perfect perfection of that gift. And so when we talk about Mary as uh, the queen, of the, queen the, the mother of the church, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about that example of that pure gift that we can imitate, but we can never get close to doing as well. Robin, great question. Thanks so much for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, send it to openline at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll talk with John in Nebraska. Lines are open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Lines are open for you. That's why we call it Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Our number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in Ohio need to hear from you next week. St. Gabriel Radio in Central and Southern Ohio airing their fall pledge drive. That's coming up next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening to us in Columbus or in Portsmouth or Chillicothe or really anywhere, please support your Catholic radio station. Let's go now to John in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, John. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thanks for taking my call. What's on my mind, I guess, would have to be, uh, where, where, what are the churches? what's the Church's game plan uh, for the uh, decline in, in births? I mean, the birth rate is going to eventually mm-hmm. drop pretty soon. Less and less people are going to church. More and more people are choosing to leave the church, become atheist or agnostic or just, you know, not nothing at all in particular. But, yeah, I mean, like, what? I guess my, my question is, is what is the game plan? And I don't know if, you're, if the church is planning, uh, I don't know if the church is planning on showing their hand on this, but, uh, um, you know, my, my thing is, what are you going to do? Are you going to work with charitable groups when you are you going to work with charitable groups when you decide to sell the church? Or okay, now now you're getting into silly land here. So let me <laughs> answer your question. Uh, the church never depends upon those kinds of things. Yes, the church has a plan of evangelization, of catechesis, uh, of outreach in different areas. EWTN is certainly a, an instrument of outreach to parts of the world. Indeed, parts of the world that the church can't get into because of political circumstances mm-hmm, or hostility yeah. to the message of Christ. All of that will go on. Um, and I would note that this is not unique in human history. Uh, the disasters can be the invasion of different barbarian tribes of Europe, for example, as happened in different times in history, uh, in the 400s and other, other centuries. Uh, it can be the Black Plague, which I think estimates are 60%. Ooh. Wow. 60% of the population of Europe killed. When we think of COVID, well, we know there were millions killed, but nothing on the scale of the plague uh, yeah. in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of demographic questions might be good if you were a corporation and considering who to market to. The church job is to market to everybody because all are called to share in salvation of Christ. The job of the individual is not to buy the product, but to accept, decide whether they accept that truth, the truth which the church teaches, 
and if so, to act upon it, which means to come into the flock of, of those redeemed by Christ and baptized into his passion, death, and resurrection, confirmed in the grace of the Holy Spirit, receiving his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist, um, re repenting from and beginning anew through the sacrament of penance, sanctifying marriage through, or, through uh, the sacrament of matrimony, uh, being comforted in the hour of one's death in the anointing of the sick, uh, creating a clergy for to continue on that work through holy orders. And so you go down the line of what the church does, that will, al it will always be in season or out season, regardless of any demographic uh, collection. And it looks if the faith dies away in, um, in North America and Europe, that countries in Africa and maybe someday Asia will be the ones to come to us. We already see this in the United States. Sure Your vocations have declined where you see Filipino and uh, African uh, clergy coming to minister in parishes. So God, God will provide for that in his providence, but it's not salesmanship that is needed or even a game plan because it's his game plan. Yes. Uh, we can think even of EWTN. Uh, who would have thought there'd be a television network? But he had a game plan, and he called a nun who had $200 to implement it. But yet here we are in virtually all the countries of the world, if there's no place that can't get our signal. And in many of the languages of the world now, a, a dozen that I think uh, we're probably in, if I lose track of these things, count yeah, of them. Yeah. So the God will arrange that. So the loss of the loss of population, the loss of faith, that's something the church can, can do uh, something about. So our bishops in the United States are doing the Eucharistic Revival, which will conclude next year in Indianapolis with the uh, Eucharistic Congress. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is to revive faith in the Holy Eucharist. Because if you, it, the minute you realize that the m most personal relationship you can have with the Savior is to receive him, body, blood, soul, and divinity into your own soul, then you yearn to have the Eucharist. But you can't make people do that, and the church doesn't try. It can evangelize, it can catechize, but it's also ultimately up to individuals. One of my favorite stories to tell uh, is telling the story of Mother Angelica. It just, it blows me away, you know, because it is, it is so wonderful it's so true you know if you would have said 20 years prior that here is a nun in Alabama of all places who is going to lead the charge and build this amazing global empire right and the, the whole history of the church is filled with such examples mm -hmm. uh, when you think of St. Francis he had virtually nothing. He didn't want anything. Yeah, yeah. But he got followers all over the place. Mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a way, he was, a, he was an answer to certain sects in Europe, like the Waldensians and others that, you know, totally eschewed the world. But it was, you know, it was, didn't have the faith in, yeah. in, in deep in it. Yeah. So he was the answer to that. But who could write the script that one of his daughters, Claire, one of her daughters... Angelica, <laughs> yes, yes, would carry on that work, 
from about as much money, as, relatively speaking, yeah. in, as yeah. Francis had in his pocket back in the day when his father was a merchant and he had paid me a little pocket money. It, it, yeah, it just makes me <laughs> smile every day. Hey, thanks so much for your question. Appreciate that. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Elizabeth now, a first-time caller from Washington, listening uh, today and watching us as well on YouTube. Hello, Elizabeth. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a question about the unity prayer, or more specifically, the flame of love prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with it. A little Um, bit. It was was apparently um, revealed by Jesus to a mystic named Elizabeth Kindleman, mm-hmm. and um, I've been encouraged to add this prayer, which effectively alters the Hail Mary during my rosary prayer. And the way it goes is that you say, pray for us sinners, spread the effective grace of thy flame of love over all of humanity, now and at the hour of our death. So I've been encouraged to pray that during the rosary and replace, well, not replace, but I guess alter all of the Hail Marys of the rosary with that line. And I know that this has an imprimatur, but, and that's been used to kind of, um, used by people who are encouraging me to say, this is legit, we should do this. And, but I, something about it just altering the Hail Mary prayer made me feel uncomfortable. And I just was, and I couldn't really find too much information elsewhere about this. I know Catholic Answers says to, you know, be careful with it, but I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not can't speak with authority. Obviously, this uh, this has like the lowest level of any Episcopal support. Um, the The cardinal in Hungary, I believe, was the one who gave the imprimatur uh, to her to her writings. I'm not sure that w- what all is un- uncovered by that. That is only the first stage of any kind of acceptance uh, by the Church, and it's not even a judgment on her mysticism. The judgment on her mysticism can only come after she's dead and she has a cause. And then the the Church, first locally and then in Rome, will evaluate it. So perhaps there's some comfort in the fact that her writings, this particular book, has an imprimatur, However, we're talking about a prayer that obviously is not obligatory to any Catholic. But I would be hesitant about modifying a prayer of such venerable usage as the Hail Mary. That would be my reservation purely on a logical level and a personal level. You know, there's Many things can be introduced into the into the Hail Mary and have been, or not into the Hail Marys per se, but the Rosary. Pope John Paul II, in writing about the Rosary, talks about the prayers that are sort of constituent of the Rosary, and that's the decades. What we say before the decades begin, what we say after, you find variations in different parishes and so on, and they each have their history, their usages. The the you know the prayer the prayer, for example. Um, well, the saying of the creed and the Our Father and the Three Hail Marys and so on. All of those things have their tradition. But the rosary itself as an indulgence prayer, for example, is the, is the, are the prayers themselves. And many people adjust the endings of that. 
In Fatima, Our Lady requested that the prayer be said, O oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of your mercy. And so Catholics have added that. Again, as a, a part of a long development of the acceptance of Fatima. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was probably some Portuguese back in the early part of the last century who had accepted it and were practicing it. And that's all well and good. But I think for the generality of people, you would then uh, wait on the church on something like that. So perhaps you could say it had a good beginning. I'm a little suspicious of that point, as I think you rightly are. Mm -hmm. But on principle, I don't think it's good to, you know, to cut away the last half of an established prayer of many centuries usage for the sake of uh, uh, a modern revelation mm-hmm. not yet affirmed by the church as credible and that merely has an imprimatur on on a book by a woman who I I believe she's still alive I'm not certain and she is not alive she anymore. is not alive but no. does she have a cause and where is it at and all sure. of that kind of thing okay so that would be my advice is uh, wait wait on the church on doing that part of that caveat emptor yes all right uh, Elizabeth is that helpful for you Yes, very helpful. Thank you so much. We uh, hope that you uh, keep listening to EWTN. Thanks so much for your call. Don't forget, uh, coming up tomorrow afternoon, Dr. Doctor, one of my favorite shows, coming up Saturday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern. This week, Glenn Stanton. He's the director of Global Family Formation Studies over at Focus on the Family. He goes through the latest data about climate change to parse fact and fiction about whether humans are the worst thing for the environment. Should be a fascinating show. Dr. Doctor, that is uh, tomorrow afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN, the exclusive radio home for Dr. Doctor, and it's the exclusive um, radio show for the Catholic Medical Association. I thought it was cows, actually. Well, that's another story (laughs) we don't want to go into at this particular moment. It's uh, got me on that one. Yeah. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. We can probably squeeze in a few more calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jim wrote to us uh, and says, What is the purpose of saying the confidior at Mass, also known as the I confess? Does this absolve us? Uh, it absolves a venial sin, but then any pious act does. So simply turning our mind to God in our sorrow for sin is a pious act which can remove the guilt of venial sin, uh, repenting from those things. The, the guilt of mortal sin, however, which breaks the relationship with God, is authoritatively uh, uh, taken care of in the sacrament of confession. So throughout our days, we can be many times doing things which... Uh, deliver us from the from venial sin we make the sign of the cross piously we pray piously we do an act of penance all of these things can turn our heart back to god i consider it like writing a needle needle if our needle should be pointing east to god Mm -hmm. at orientum if Mm -hmm. you will yes and we have venial sin we're maybe a little bit northeast or east by northeast or even north by northeast And we can yank that around, but if we're pointing west or northwest or southwest, we need the church's help to 
make that jump back because those sins have broken our relationship with God where we've smudged them if you will yes by so we can we can clean up our the the guilt of our venial sins throughout the day by by acts of penitence and piety and so on and charity even turning our heart and our mind to God and fixing our mind on him that does that so when in the Mass are we asked to do that? We're asked to do it at the beginning because we're going to come, we're going to hear the Word of God. We want to have, the priest says, you know, may the Word be on my mind and on my lips and in my heart, or the deacon before he, mm-hmm. uh, before he reads the Gospel. Because we want to have an open mind and an open heart and pure lips to receive or to give the Gospel. We want to go through the, right, through the liturgy of the Word with a clean heart. So we do the confidio. It doesn't take away mortal sin. This was a theory in the 70s when certain individuals wanted to get rid of the sacrament of penance. Mm. Well, when they get absolution at the confidio, that's enough if they've got mortal sin. No, that's not enough. But we're disposed to participate in the Mass. You know, but then we see the person who annoys us over there, and we get a little bit grumpy, or the <laughs> woman with the hat who, who's, you know, I can't see the mask. Take maybe that maybe hat I'm off. putting me back in the 50s here. Yeah, or not, I think so, a little yeah. Bit there. But that's the way the hats were. You remember yes, those hats. Yes, sure. Uh, so we have, we could have multiple occasions, to, to even during the course of the mass, human beings that we are, to, you know, need a little bit of washing mm, up before yeah. we go up to communion. Yep. So what do we do? Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word. So once again, we do a pious act that can remove venial guilt, but not mortal guilt. Exactly. So, and we do that throughout the day. When we go in and we bless ourselves entering the church, you know, the many ways in which we can do it. When we say the rosary and we're constantly turning our mind to God, pray for us sinners. So these are all little acts of purification which dispose us for the one that is necessary when we go into the confessional and say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Because that sin is sin that needs his help. We can go for venial sin. Devotional conf- uh, con- confessions are fine and mm-hmm. they're beautiful and they help push us down the road and the church recommends them. But when we really need it, it's for the mortal sin and we go in and uh, the words of the priest bring comfort to the soul and his absolution removes the guilt. Jim, thanks so much for your email. Let's go back to the phones and talk with Tom in Chicago, listening on the great WSFI. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hey, guys. Uh, love the show. I, I listen every day on my way home from work. Um, my question is, uh, you're talking about um, the Hail Mary and the altering of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about the prayer to St. Gert- Gertrude uh, for the souls in purgatory. How did, how did that come about? Is that, that's a legit thing, right? Uh, yes and no. Um, there's some argument as to whether she co- actually composed it. Uh, so I think it was discovered in the, in the 1500s or at some point. I'm not exactly clear on this history. But uh, that's the one, if I'm not mistaken, where a thousand souls are promised yes. to be released from purgatory. Yes, yes. You got me at that because the church says that's superstitious. So back in the 40s, this question was asked of the what was then called the Holy Office, and then the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and now the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Mm. And so the answer to your question is that 
No, the church does not support the view that by saying prayers like that, a thousand souls are flying out of purgatory. So that is either not from St. Gertrude, and somebody's added it at some point, Mm -hmm. or uh, the whole thing might not be from St. Gertrude. The answer to that, we don't know, uh, either of those questions. But the prayer itself is superstitious, like one that was going around in the 90s of, you know, leave this prayer, uh, leave seven copies or nine copies of this uh, novena in the church, and, you know, and you do this for nine days, and you're going to get, you know, guaranteed the answer. No, we have no guarantees. Thy will be done. That's what we, when we pray, we say, thy will be done. We don't need a guarantee, Lord, but we know you love us. We know you'll give us what we really need. And that's the basis of prayer, not, oh, I can free a thousand souls today from purgatory by saying this Gertrude prayer. Church doesn't buy that at all. All right, uh, Tom, thanks so much for your call from Chicago. Here's uh, an email now from Lee. I have recently learned about humans who have two people's DNA. Would this human being have two souls? Well, here's the story on that. Uh, They now know that women who are mothers may have multiple people's DNA because one of the things that acclimates the mother, Mm -hmm. uh, the child, the mother to the child so that she is, uh, allows it to grow inside of her is that her immune system gets accustomed to that presence. Mm-hmm. And I've read that they even think the process of labor is triggered by, you know, a, a, a certain point somehow in this whole cycle of things. And now they're finding that there is what's called uh, genetic mosaicism in different organs of the mother that represent the different children because the cells get into the bloodstream and so uh, the DNA gets into the bloodstream and then ends up uh, in the mother. So, that that would be uh, that would be a case of that. I'm not sure about uh, twins. What has been? Uh, I'm sure they've replaced the name name Siamese twins because I think that's considered an impolite term or something. But in those cases where it results from the a from the fertilized ovum dividing, and the DNA is separate is is you can get differences between them there. I'm not sure about the exact question you answered, asked though. Humans who have two people's DNA, uh, would this would this person have two souls? No, that oh that question is an absolute no. Okay. A person has one soul. All right. Remember, the DNA is instrumental to the biological processes of the body, mm-hmm. whether it's the reproductive process or the metabolic process, which depends completely on the. The, the DNA code and the, you know, the codons that tell the body make these proteins, etc. Mm-hmm. And so we're totally dependent upon that. But that kind of thing does not change the fact that at, at, re, at fertilization, a single soul is given to that. Okay. It may be a theological problem what happens in the case of twins that cleave, but obviously uh. we, take, we take both individuals to be human as demonstrated by their by their c- capabilities. Yeah. If they have human capabilities of thinking and willing, there are two souls present. There you go. Appreciate that, uh, Lee. Thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Dave. How do the church fathers know when to take Scripture literally and when to take it figuratively? 
Well, they they certainly the fathers developed a way of reading scripture, but essentially it amounts to the same thing as we do today. If you read De Verbum of the Second Vatican Council on interpreting scripture, the literal sense is what the author is saying and what he intends. So it's a question of what did the author intend? So when Jesus said, well, you know, if your eye is a problem, pluck it out, I, I think people would be asking themselves, did he mean that literally? And most people would say, no, he can't have meant that literally. He was talking of the, in the extreme case that represents how seriously you could say, cut off the hand, pluck out the eye. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's meant, meant as a metaphor, as a symbol of something of a deeper truth. And I think they didn't have any infallible insight into that. But what the fathers represent for the church today in some cases where they all agree on something, that's taken as having been given to them by the apostles. And remember, they're in all parts of the empire. So not necessarily all the same apostle, but the same faith. And when you find the same faith represented in what the fathers have written or, or preached, then you know that it's, that it's from the apostolic tradition. Other things, they had to, you know, they had to ponder them out themselves. And you find fathers disagreeing. And therefore, the church must ponder those things as well. There was, you know, but we're promised by Christ. The, the church was promised in the apostles, the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead into all truth. So progressively over time, we have got deeper and deeper into the truth contained in public revelation, whether written down in scripture or passed on in the teaching of the apostles. And uh, we continue to do that today as the church works out any number of problems, especially moral ones in a modern world with all its complexities. Yes, indeed. Dave, thanks so much uh, for your email. This is my, my wandering mind here. I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great if Dave's last name was Verboom? Wouldn't that be great? Dave, Dave Verboom. Verboom. <laughs> would that be fantastic? <laughs> maybe not, though. Well, yeah, yes, maybe it not. would be cheesy, at least. It would be cheesy. You know. <laughs> Gotta love cheesy. Yep. Colin Donovan, have a wonderful weekend. And you as well. We hope all of our listeners have a wonderful weekend. If you missed part of our program, check out The Encore tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern, which is when we encore each of our open line programs. 10 p.m. Eastern, that would be 7 p.m. on the West Coast. Also, check out the podcast anytime over the weekend, whenever you want, by going to EWTN.com slash radio. EWTN.com slash radio, and then click on podcast. You are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, Michael, Matt, and Jeff, I'm Tom Price along with Colin Donovan. Hope that you have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time here on EWTN. God bless. God bless.